Let's take this as a kind of rapid-fire roundup of the whole world of sustainable-style ethical fashion as I see it. I'm going to start with a very binary approach. I'm going to start with something very, very ugly. Very, very ugly and very unattractive. Um, uh, Storm referred to butch women with hairy armpits. We've heard a lot about hairy hemp. No, I'm not talking about that because I actually don't think the styling or non-styling, because tie-dye is very in the frame, of sustainable style is the ugliest thing. The ugliest thing is this, which is mob shopping. So what I want to start off with is from a point of asking ourselves, what have we become as consumers? Now, I'm not suggesting anyone here was here, but I think it's worth looking at the phenomenon of mob shopping and the fact that we buy in this very peculiar way. So fast fashion, as we call it, is um, it's a relatively new concept. As Dillis kindly pointed out, I'm so old that I remember fashion before fast fashion, and I remember getting dressed before fast fashion, and something has happened to us. We can see it in all the statistics. We know by how much is made. By my reckoning, there's between 80 and 100 billion garments made a year, which I know is not very specific, but, you know, by my calculations. Um, some of these slides are slightly out of focus, i just like to point out. Um, but we, we have a different way of consuming, and I would say it's manic consumption, and I think it's indicative of a lot of other things possibly psychological problems, and I don't think it adds up to a very healthy way of being for planet or consumer, and I want to keep coming back to planet and consumer, because they're both important, you know, people are important. Just because we talk about the environment and ethics doesn't mean that we kind of don't think humans are important. So we're talking about, you know, the haulers who do this kind of whole, hey, I got this today, and this goes with this, and la la la. They're not my favorites. Anyway, this is a brain scan that neuroscientists put together of what happens to your brain when you do indulge in fast fashion shopping. So it's basically, I can't really decipher this because I'm not a neuroscientist, evidently. But essentially, what it is saying, the headline is that you go quite crazy. And the hit that you get is not actually from the possession of the garment. It is from initially seeing the garment, which must tie into some hunter-gatherer instinct. So that's what we see it, and then it's going and grabbing it, and then there is some residual activity when you take it to the till. As soon as you get it out, there's not very much at all. So I don't know. I don't know we could replicate this by just going into shops and seeing something and taking it to the till and then running out. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a strategy. I don't know. But this is all equated to buy more, pay less. So this is the whole kind of idea. You see people not just mob shopping, but buying in bulk. So it's like I really, really am worried about this, you know, this thing about really, really like white t-shirts and, and uh, white trainers, box fresh trainers. In my day, like he said, I'm very old, we had the Daz doorstep, I'm only joking, I'm just using you as a sort of sidekick, that we had the Daz doorstep challenge when you'd like, like housewives in a really kind of sexist way would be interviewed about how they did their washing, because <laughs> that's all women did was washing. 
And now it's like, now it's kind of transferred into this thing of having to have pristine shoes and t-shirts the whole time. And I know how people are doing it. I'm not that stupid. They're buying lots of very cheap ones, and these things are not even being washed. So garments are lucky if they make the laundry. Okay, I don't think that's the most sensible thing. Now, this is Veruca Salt, but this is, I think we need to, we need to ask ourselves what we have become as consumers um, and how demanding we are. We want the moon on a stick, and there's all of these people, all of these amazing people working in sustainable style or not, trying to cater to our every need. Now, has anybody here worked in retail? Hands up if you've worked in retail. Okay, me too. You know the customer, right? They're very needy. They're very needy. I mean, I remember people coming in. I was like, why is this being returned, madam? A button's fallen off. Oh, do you not have a needle and thread? Okay, okay. But they want everything. They want everything. And we have to sort of start thinking, when do we draw the line? Because I think that not all, but some consumer rights are actually causing their own set of environmental problems. Sorry, I just spat. Okay, it's getting very excited. Okay, now, um, what, essentially what I'm asking is, what is the true cost of our patterns of consumption and our desire for more and more and buying in bulk? And by the way, that mob shopping thing, you probably won't see that very much in the future because now we're doing it in secret. It's been forced underground. We're doing it on the internet. You know, like these poor people staggering up with those you know, net-a-porte boxes or whatever, and then taking half of it back. You know, it's, all, it's a kind of um, pandemic which now has kind of been forced underground. So last year, I was involved in a documentary called The True Cost. Please watch it on Netflix. I think it's rather good. And it's made by um, Andrew Morgan, who is based in L.A., and he had no experience of the fashion industry. So I think it's a very clear-sighted examination of what has happened, and I'm going to say it, of what has gone wrong over the last decade, maybe to 15 years. Um, and the true cost of fashion, first of all, the, the first thing to acknowledge is that this is big. You know, making these garments, this is using, it's a full-spectrum industry. It goes from the cotton growing in the fields or the oil that needs to be refined and cracked and whatever and spun into, extruded into polyester. It takes a lot to make a garment. There's a lot of stuff that's gone into there, a lot of resources, including human labor. And that's one of the things that's not really acknowledged anymore. So when you treat an item of clothing as if it's disposable, it is a huge, huge insult, not just to the environment, but also to humanity. There are 101, this is the theory, 101 different steps to making a garment. <laughs> now, what we have to look at when we're thinking about what's gone wrong is the fact that only four to six of those processes are the processes that you know, the 19-year-old Stacy was confronted by when she went into those makeshift production facilities in India. How lovely to see that again, by the way, and what a natural you were. I mean, they completely lucked out when you decided to do that program. Um, so only four to six of these processes are focused at what I would call the cut, make, and trim army. And this is one of the engines... Bangladesh, as you all know. This is where millions of mainly women are involved in those four to six, maybe eight processes, actually putting those um, garments together, the cut, make, and trim part of the equation. 
This, as you can see, is what would be termed as a very good factory. And I think, similarly to, to Stacey, the first time I went to Dhaka in Bangladesh and saw factories, I couldn't believe what they were showing me because they were really proud of this factory. And to me, it looked like such a makeshift facility. It wasn't even a purpose-built building. It was what I would consider to be an office block. And this is where part of the issue has been. So when we look at the way that fashions, today's fashion is made, and I'm talking about fast fashion, so the fashion that most people will wear, you are talking about uh, a supply chain that has so much pressure in it and on it in a place like Bangladesh has not really got a history of making clothing at this volume for a Western audience. And we have seen David articulated brilliantly how we lost that trade from the UK, for example, and it basically landed in Dhaka, where suddenly they had to scale up capacity really, really quickly. Um, and you'll all know about the um, Rana Plaza collapse in 2013 when 1,133 people were killed in a single accident. And this is why that happened. And unfortunately, a lot of us who'd been working around this, um, this whole subject had predicted something on this scale for a, lot, for a long time. About 1,000 people die every year in the fashion trade. Um, in the fashion industry, and this was one complete disaster where the generators were placed on top of the building because another thing about Bangladesh production is that the electricity, the power supply is very uncertain. So this is kind of the most horrific, horrific industrial disaster that certainly any of us have ever been aware of. <coughs> Um, this was previously the worst disaster, and this was in 1912 in New York, and it was the Shirtwaist Triangle um, fire disaster when uh, 112 garment workers, female garment workers again, and most of the victims of Rana Plaza were women as well, were killed when a, um, a shirt factory caught fire and they couldn't leave the building. And when this, when this happened, it triggered a huge change in the labor laws in New York. People said this must never happen again. So obviously the, the question after Rana Plaza is why is this still happening? Why is that pressure still on the system? The reality for garment workers is, and if you have traveled around a lot and seen a lot of production facilities in Cambodia, Bangladesh, India, all around the world, you will know that garment workers live the most extraordinary lives. So in Bangladesh, for example, you're very aware during election season, which seems to happen all the time, that uh, all the um, tannoys come on late at night. And I was like, why is this now? And that's because when they finish their shifts, you know, they have a few hours off every day. Pay is uncertain, conditions are uncertain. This is the reality of today's labor chain, supply chain. Now, this is actually a quote that I first came across in Selfridges um, in about 2007 when Selfridges stocked some really um, groundbreaking sustainable brands. And it's from Ali Houston, who um, is married to Bono, coincidentally. Um, shouldn't be defined by that. We carry the story of the people who make our clothes around with us. And she um, was one of the people who set up Eden, a sustainable brand or a conscious collection. And I think that's such a pivotal quote for this whole um, sustainable style movement. Because it's not, as David Hyatt again said, it's also about the narrative. It's also about the story behind the clothing. Because otherwise, really, what have we done? 
Um, there's other environmental factors in the supply chain as well that we have to think about. As I said, it's a full-spectrum industry. There's lots of labour rights abuses around cotton picking, Uzbekistan, where child labour is systematically used every year. There's an awful lot of skeletons in the closet. This is um, just to highlight the fact that we can't go on like this. Forget all the moral reasons and needing to change and not killing people in dodgy supply chains that we could sort out. We are now in the Anthropocene, also known as the Holocene, and this is the first time, according to scientists, that humans are changing the course of the planet and bringing on the sixth mass extinction. It's not very cheerful, is it? But it is, does mean that we really, really need to act. You know, this is not like some sort of casual warning or a little kind of um, uh, rehearsal. It really, really does need to be now. And fashion, I think we become so, um, so removed from the supply chain and so, um, so kind of distracted by the gloss and the newness and all the rest of it that we forget the reality, which is pretty gritty for most of the fashion chain. This is a leather factory. Um, this is also somewhere in Dhaka. Um, and you can see this is uh, wet blue. So this is leather being processed. And I would say, this man is in fashion as much as anyone else. It's just that he's not really acknowledged. We don't really acknowledge these people in the supply chain. And we know the upshot of this is unbelievable waste. So the waste in fashion, I think, is the next big story. I think that's the next big thing that's really going to be uncovered because we really don't know the full extent of it or where it all goes. And what's always been interesting to me is when you meet people from other cultures. So if you, I've seen Indian women who've been going through our recycling that's come from the UK, and they were in hysterics. They just couldn't work it out. First of all, they kept taking out people's bras, and they were like, "Why? these are hilarious. Why are they so embroidered? Why are they so fancy? They're just undergarments. And then another woman said, well, maybe they don't have any water, because all of this stuff is very new, and it's not washed. So they were trying to come up with reasons as to why we would treat our clothes in this peculiar way. Um, I'm going to skip through this. OK, so. We kind of want to stop doing this. This is, this is from a Bangladeshi um, newspaper after Rana Plaza. And that's essentially you know, what, what was thought of, of the Western consumer. So you know, you're buying something bloodstained. It's fairly kind of um, a visceral kind of reminder. Um, and we want an alternative. So we're looking at sustainable fashion. We're looking at um, modifying our supply chain. We're looking at making, at averting the risk, taking some of the responsibility off these people, these um, cut, make, and trim army, who get paid the least and are the most vulnerable and shoulder the most responsibility. We're also looking at how we can do better in the future because we just can't sustain the way that we consume and make fashion at the moment. So one of the things that we've needed to do, and it's been spoken of a lot, is awareness. Um, I started the Green Carpet Challenge with my friend Livia Firth, um, kind of coincidentally in 2012. Um, and it kind of blossomed into this thing where we were suddenly getting sustainable style on the red carpet. And we got to work with some very big-name designers. So uh, Cameron Diaz wearing Stella McCartney. I think Julianne Moore is wearing Tom Ford. This, I think, is Valentino that Viola Davis is wearing. So you get the picture. Uh, Meryl Streep in, La in Lonvan. And they were all using sustainable fabrics, or they were um, 
repurposed fabric. So there was a, a sustainable motif going across the whole thing. And suddenly, we managed to get people talking about it and moving away from the idea that it was hairy hemp and, you know, unsellable and nobody would want to talk to you and all the rest of it. I mean, the guys, you can't even tell, can you? I mean, it's just sustainable merino wool. So that was one of the things we could do. I won't talk about the, um, the leather project, because Cameron's already said that, and I should update my pictures to have your amazing bag. But this has been really, really important. And these rancheros as well, they are in the fashion chain. They are in the fashion business as well. And these are the people that we need to engage with. So everybody always wants to know what they can do. And that is a very, very valid question. And, um, after Rana Plaza, uh, two people that we all kind of know very well, Ursula de Castro and Carrie Summers, came up with Fashion Revolution. And I still think this is a brilliant next step program. So people watch True Cost or they read about this and they want to get involved. And this is where um, the anniversary of Rana Plaza, which is the 24th of April, People get together, and there's all sorts of different initiatives, and it's a really, really easy thing to get involved with. Contacting brands, as has been mentioned, asking them questions, and just continuing to keep the pressure on and saying that we want change, we want things to be done in a different way. But I also think that we need to talk about ourselves as consumers and how we react and what we want, because you do get the sort of fashion culture that you deserve. And I think it's worth thinking in those terms. If we don't protect our fashion culture and think about what we want and how uh, we want this industry to be, we will lose it, and we are starting to lose it. This is um, a, a, an old-fashioned plate which the, the photographer called it more fashion mileage per dress, but she didn't really mean any sustainability thing by it. But I think it's quite a useful metaphor. Um, and I think that idea of wearing things and wearing things and wearing things is starting to develop some sort of cachet, which I think is really interesting. I also think we should protect our sense of humor, because I think that's what a lot of our fashion in the UK is about, that kind of wit and wisdom fused together to create something quite extraordinary. And I think we should embrace this seriously quirky, maybe not this quirky, but this is the kind of thing that I'm kind of talking about. I also think that there's nothing more empowering than making something yourself, or knitting something yourself, or just getting to grips with a, you know, how a seam is made and putting all that energy into something. Once you've made something yourself, you will never, ever forget how hard it is, and you will really, really respect every piece of clothing that you have. Um, I just wanted to briefly talk and justify my own huge carbon footprint over the last few years as I've gone in search of this fashion culture. The, all these little pink dots are indigenous communities in the Amazon. And I was very fortunate to go and stay with an indigenous community on the Venezuelan border with Brazil in the Amazon, where they are really kind of amazing pattern makers. And it's all passed down. Nothing's written down or nothing's drawn. It's all passed down from generation to generation. And I went with um, a fashion designer in Brazil who was trying to work with this indigenous community and wanted to use one of their designs and work with them and spent six months with an anthropologist living with the community. And I thought that was an amazing story because we see so much appropriation, cultural appropriation in fashion, that somebody would spend the time negotiating with a, with a tribe to use their 
their very, very precious pattern and design, I thought was such an amazing um, thing and such a strong fashion culture. This is an Uzbekistani weaver who I've come across some of her work on my travels. And it's just the kind of the detail and the, and the beauty and the way that they're articulating su such kind of a legacy and such a cultural heritage through their work, which is really, really important. For me, this is the foundations of global fashion. And I think it's, I think it's really, really worth trying to understand a little bit where that comes from. Um, Zandra Rhodes, who you may know, the designer with the very pink hair, I went to Bangladesh with last year. And she um, produced a collection with People Tree, which another brand that you might know, which I came across also for the first time in Selfridges many years ago. And uh, this was a real lesson to me in how designers are wonderful at working with makers and how liberating they find it and the, the, the kind of juice they can squeeze from this process, yes, was really, really important to me. Um, this lady here in Bangladesh, in northern Bangladesh, women were never allowed on the looms. They had to fight to get on the looms because men said they weren't strong enough. What they were actually saying was, those are the jobs that earn all the money. They now operate all the looms in this facility and they produced all Zandra's collection. You see how beautiful that fabric is as well. It was absolutely amazing. And this is Shima, who I also came across in the sewing room. She survived Rana Plaza, and she moved to northern Bangladesh, <laughs> where she became a seamstress. So instead of just sewing one seam continuously in a hellhole in Dhaka, she can actually now make a whole garment. And that transition is possible if you look at this fashion system in a different way. And it taught me that we really, really can change the fashion system. And it is possible, fully possible, to produce clothes where people, the producer, and the place is respected.